Whew. All right. Well, officially, um, see when the notes switch over to mine. Um, officially, today is session three, and a whole bunch of you don't have the luxury of having been in sessions one or two of our talk. So I'm going to go back a little bit. It's okay. I knew that. I knew that when I set this up. And so uh, I'm going to do a little prequel work for you as we look into this. The conversation we wanted to have with our students this weekend um, had to do with the idea of, of where, where do I fit? Who am I? Where do I belong? And, and what is my life supposed to look like? What is a, what is a good life, a valuable life, a, an eternal life? What does it look like? And so as we've had this conversation one of the things that we really emphasized with this was this idea that the Christian life, the Christ-following life, is supposed to be saturated with Christ. That it's supposed to be densely packed with Christ. Not, not just something we do on the side or that we do every once in a while or, or that we do like, oh, we're going to do a little bit of that here, a little bit of that there, or I'm going to squeeze it in where it fits. But in fact, that it really um, saturates everything that we are. We looked at some examples that we're gonna, I'm going to go over very quickly but this picture that, that we get from the book of Ephesians. So we, we've run through most of the book of Ephesians, just in the two sessions that we've had. And then off, off, um, off non-in-meeting times, when they're back in their homes, they've been studying chapter 6 in particular. But again, we'll get there. So that we found out that from this letter to the church in Ephesus, that Jesus Christ should be my life when I walk, parapateo, or parapateo, I'm saying it not well in Andy's, going to be frustrated with me that I missed it by a little bit, but that's okay. I'm close. Um, and so that, that picture that we are supposed to walk, that our life is saturated, everything we do, even the steps we take, the breath we breathe, it's all connected to um, Christ. And then that we're, the main theme of Ephesians is that, walk. <clears throat> then we have um, stand, which is the final theme of Ephesians. It's where we got the theme for the weekend is from this idea. And again, we're going to unpack that a little more this morning. And then finally, what we're going to talk about is pray. Paul's final request from the readers of the letter of Ephesians, the letter to Ephesus. So we looked at some key examples that the, actually the Apostle Paul gives in other places for what the saturated life looks like. He uses the example, for example, uh, of farmers. If you know any farmers, um, then what they talk about is farming. If you ever know any farmers, you sit down with them, that's what they want to talk about. They want to talk about their garden. It's time for them to have the seedlings going. It's time for them to have the, the animals, this and that. Like they, that's what they're talking about right now. In fact, what they're talking about right now is planting seeds and the seedlings and, and how that's going. I, I'm, I'm in that pack a little bit too. So they get up early in the morning. Those who are professional farmers, they get up early in the morning. They take care of animals all day. In fact, a few years ago, um, so most of you know I read out loud to Ginger most nights, and we read through the Little House on the Prairie series. Anybody read Little House on the Prairie? Now watch the show, read the books. Different, different. Okay, so one of the books is called Farmer Boy, and it's about a nine-year-old boy. Let me say that again. A nine-year-old boy, this nine-year-old boy, farmer boy, gets up before sunrise, does his morning chores, has breakfast, and at that stage, he's already done more work than most of us adult men would be capable of doing in a day. But he's, he's done his morning chores, he has breakfast, then he harrows the field, meaning drags the field behind a team of oxen from that time until lunchtime. Then he comes in for lunch, and then he drags the field the rest of the day until nightfall, and then he has dinner, and then he does his evening chores. Nine-year-old boy. When you're a farmer, what you do is farm. Your life is saturated with it. All your thoughts are saturated with it. You don't wake up going, oh, that hail sounds really wild. 
You wake up panicking about your crops. That's what you do. Another picture that the Apostle Paul uses is that of an athlete. We share, I shared with the students last night that we discovered that, that Michael Phelps, for example, who's already genetically created to be the fastest swimmer alive, he has this huge advantage, and yet he spent, when he's preparing for the Olympics, <laughs> three to six hours every day in the water. In the water. That doesn't count the time he spends outside of the water doing exercising and, and fitness stuff and all the other stuff that he does. But that is a, that's, that's him. Simone Biles' intensive week training is 32 hours a week preparing for the Olympics. A 2012 a study indicated that most Olympians have spent 10,000 or more hours in preparation for the Olympics. Their lives are wrapped up in this picture of being an athlete. And then, of course, the soldier, which fits perfectly with our theme since it has to do with soldiering, this idea of standing, um, the devotion, the single-mindedness, the wholehearted pursuit. Christianity, the Christian walk, it's not a Christian sit, but a Christian walk is something that is an ongoing, all-the-time thing. It's not a side gig. It is the all-encompassing, saturating identity that comes with knowing Christ. It affects everything we do if we're living out the Christian life, or at least it's supposed to. And listen, I know it's tough. I know it's tough. Believe me, I know it's tough. I know how easily we are distracted. At least I am. How easily we're sidelined by different things in our lives. In fact, I think, I've thought for years, and those who know me best know, I believe that God probably put me in this position because he knew that I could not be successful at saturating my life with him if my career didn't demand it. I'm just not strong enough. I'm too easily distracted. And I think God put me here because of my weakness and the ability to, that he knows I need, I need you focused on me. So, this was our key passage. We've read it over and over again this week. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness by the gospel of peace, and all circumstances take the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So again, they spent time in the homes discussing these. Now, do we comprehend the fact that the truth is not sourced in us? Do we gird ourselves with the truth? Do we study it and discern it? We also talked about, do, do we know what is right? Do we, do we listen to the opinions of others, or is the opinions of the righteous one God the one that gets the final vote? Do we choose even what we know is right? Or do we choose it when it costs us comfort, money, popularity, or fame? Do we know the gospel? Are we ready, eager agents of that gospel? Are we agents of that peace? Are our feet prepared to walk that way? Are we willing to be persuaded by the goodness of God? Or are we cynically always having to explain everything away? Are we desperately seeking any other possible theory to explain away what God has done in our life? Or are we willing to take up this shield? Do we seek only the viewpoints of those who are adversarial to trusting anyone? Are we willing to protect ourselves with the initiative, uh, the intuitive understanding that life and love matter more than just biological and chemical reactions? That there's something deeper and more meaningful. That's the shield of faith. The helmet of salvation, do we accept the free gift of being saved, identified with him, known by him, and known by and knowing him? Do we insist on going it alone, or can we remember what God has done? Do we respect his word as inspired? Does it have messages for us every day? We're about to look at a couple of those in just a minute that as we wrap up some of the Ephesians overlook. Is, do we see it as just a magic book or something that's going to like protect us from evil spirits if it's somewhere in our house? Or 
Do we see it as a love letter from a Holy Spirit who knows us and wants us to know God? Do we defer to the authority of God's Word, even over our own opinions, as if God is revealing the truth to us? This is vital, and I want you to know here at South Spring, we consider youth ministry, student ministry, to be the ministry done by the students or to prepare the students to minister. It's not just some passive activity that they just sit and soak. Um, That's why they were serving some this weekend. It's why they were engaged in these studies. It's why they spent hours studying God's Word over this weekend, so they can be prepared for that, so that we can send them out, and so they can keep walking, and when they face the pressure of schooling or the pressure of work or the pressure to be distracted, they will stand. They'll still be standing. The imagery of this passage in Ephesians 6 is not like a parade. The imagery is that there's a battlefield, and there are dead bodies everywhere. There's bodies and body parts everywhere. Almost no one is still standing. At the end of the battle, only a few are still standing. That's what Paul's talking about. Will that be our kids? When they face pressures that maybe none of us have ever faced, I don't know what it's going to be like, will they still be standing? Or will they become distracted by things of this world? Will you guys still be standing when you face pressure, economic pressure, popularity pressure, maybe even flat-out persecution? Will you still be standing? That's our desperate desire. And we're doing something right. Of the 20 students who came um, to serve our students this weekend, 12 are former South Spring students who came back to serve at this church. Absolutely. That's, I'm super proud of that. Our students, are they're going off to school, and they're still walking, and they're still standing, and they're not only that, but they're ready to serve. They're prepared to serve. In fact, I'm going to call one of them up. Where'd, where'd you go, Garrett? Here you're somewhere. Come on up. I, I, I asked Garrett, many of, you, many of you guys know Garrett. They're applauding you already. You haven't even done anything. Um, I asked Garrett just to share a tiny bit. We were talking yesterday. I was like, just share a tiny bit about what it's like to come through a youth group that prepares you for ministry, that prepares you to live this out, and how important and significant that is. So take away, Garrett. Sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, and I just want to start off by saying, you know, I'm just one of thousands of students who have come through this ministry and been affected by it. You know, whether they come for a week or whether they come for, for six or seven years. And so um, I know that each one of these people uh, who are out here uh, can also testify what I'm about to say. Um, but you know, whenever I think about my time in the youth group, I just think of the faces. Uh, a lot of the faces are out here right now. A lot of them are up on that screen. Um, a lot of people I still keep up with, uh, even even t- until now. And I think of the late nights, you know, at D-Nows or, or youth v- uh, events or groups or camps, and just being able to share stories and backgrounds with each other, sometimes for the first time. Uh, that's when you feel the most comfortable and are able to, to be vulnerable for the first time, which just creates a bond with each other uh, that's hard to explain. I'm sure a lot of y'all felt that. Uh, I think of the early mornings at 6 a.m. at Chick-fil-A, uh, going to accountability groups and uh, making sure that you're, you're walking well throughout life and uh, standing against the, the devil's temptations. Um, you know, I think of all the nerf wars that we had at uh, different host homes or at the church, and I'm, I'm sure they're still finding uh, bullets of those today. Um, and I think of the older kids who took... The younger ones, uh, like myself and my peers, uh, under their wings and always gave us a place to, to feel like we you know, belonged and had a home. And I think of the younger kids who were able to do that uh, to later on in life. Um, you know, I think of 
Yeah, we didn't talk about this beforehand. Uh, I was going to already talk about it, but um, you know, I, one thing I really appreciate about this church and about the youth group is that we don't shy away from a hard question, uh, whether it be in life, whether it be with theology, uh, whatnot. You know, we we always talk about it. We always sit down and are able to share heart to heart about it, debate about it, you know, have um, adult conversations about it. And I think that's really rare for a youth group, and that's something I was really thankful for. Um, and it prepared me uh, for a lot of, you know, college and, and work life. Uh, when culture throws a lot of lies at you, you're able to stand on the truth that you've learned already through middle school and high school. Um, so that's what I think about. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so not knowing, I mean, I trust Garrett, not knowing what Garrett was going to say this morning, it just blew me away first service as he just described one type of discipleship after another. Discipleship, 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 which is what our church is all about. You know, I've, I firmly believe that all other forms of church growth other than discipleship are just a gimmick. Um, it's just charismatic based and it can't be dependent on a person and that's not how things work. I was so excited about that. After the first service, I was thinking, I want more of that. Give me more of that. So, so part of this conversation wraps together in something, um, and, and so it's, it, I don't know if it's going to feel weird to you or not. It does to me. This stuff always feels weird to me. But the main thing we're doing with this capital campaign is trying to build student ministry space. Now you see why. It's not because we just want more people around here. It's that we want more of that. We want more of, the, of those 12 and the others, the others who have served in so many different ways. That's what is being accomplished here, and that's why we're, when we're out of space, we go, okay, we need more space to have more discipleship type of stuff. So this is where we stand. I have to, by our bylaws, tell you, so in about a month, on the 4th, when we're going to vote for leadership board, one, I want you to elect disciple makers um, to be our leadership board. That's who we're looking for, people who get that and understand that, one. Also, we're going to be voting for all of the different financial aspects of having a giant construction project like we're about to. So like we did with the other building where you say, here's our, here's our pledge. Here's the project cost. We're going to ask for the church to vote. To Our leadership board's already talked about this. The team that put this all together has talked about this to say, we're going to, we're going to ask for the, the money to be able to um, build, go through this construction project up to, and maybe a little bit past that project cost number, which you can see is a million more than we have already had pledged. So last time we did that, $400,000 more. The money came in over the next two or three years. We ended up needing absolutely no long-term debt. That's what I believe will happen this time as well, but we need to go ahead and start the project. We can't keep waiting. Um, we're overwhelmed uh, with students, as you can see. So um, this is how we want it to be. We want them to be able to invite their friends to a cool place where they can then be discipled by people. If you have any questions about that, between now and then, note these times, show up up here, and come and ask your questions um, for our conversations and discussion if you have any questions about that at all. Um, I get excited about this. It wrapped up perfectly with the whole conversation, but I want to wrap up the armor conversation because that's what this is all about. Notice. So what is left? We've talked about the sword and the shield, the breastplate, the, the helmet, the shoes, and the belt. What's left? Not the red t-shirt underneath. Uh, that doesn't count. This thing, the pilum, the, the spear. The way that, and I, maybe Paul left that out because maybe the guard he was chained to wasn't carrying. Why would he carry that in prison? But this man who he was probably connected to, this Roman soldier, these Roman soldiers who would have changed out being his prison guards. By the way, maybe some people think actually chained to him 
because the Romans sometimes did that, is that they're having these conversations. We said he's a soldier, maybe a praetorian because he's in Rome, a prison guard, which may mean he's injured, um, and that's why he's not out in battle and combat. So this is a, probably a man, maybe an elite soldier, who has faced combat. Paul's spending hours and hours with this guy, or with these guys. What do you think they're talking about? They're talking about war. Paul doesn't know about war. Paul's not a soldier. But he's now spent half of his adult life chained to soldiers. Chained in position. By the way, probably often felt like the soldier was the one in prison, don't you think? If you were like, I'm trapped in a room with the Apostle Paul, I'm his guard, but why does it feel like I'm the one who's in prison all the time? Like, because Apostle Paul's whole life was saturated with Christ. Now we're talk, he, Paul's sitting and listening to the soldier talk about war and battle. And that soldier is stuck sitting and listening to Paul talk about what his life is saturated with, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know Paul, because you can see him do it, he's using that soldier's language. He's, he's like, that fits. I like that. I'm going to use that analogy in some of my letters that I'm sitting here writing while chained to you. I'm going to talk about this armor. Now, the way the Romans used this, by the way, <clears throat> maybe he left it out, maybe not. The Romans, the way they used those is they didn't use them like we think of spears. They threw them. They were javelins. And they're not really good for throwing, to be perfectly honest. They're heavy and they're kind of unwieldy. Well, that's not accidental. So the Romans get charged in on you, marched towards you. They had that in their hand with their big old shields of faith there. And when they got very, really close, they would all at the same time pitch their, peel them, their spears at you. And all of a sudden you had these big heavy metal wooden things falling down on top of you, pinning you to the ground, poking through your shield, poking through your armor, holding you in place, creating all types of barriers for you. And then the next thing you know, they're on you with the shield and those razor sharp scalpels that they called the gladius as they moved in on you. So maybe Paul left this out. Maybe it didn't fit. Or maybe he didn't. Because here's the next verse. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all, the per- with all perseverance, making supplication, begging, that's the word there, begging for the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me to opening, in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, literally, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Maybe, maybe Paul is saying, You know that thing that hits the enemy and pins him to the ground before we even reach him? Before we even get to him? That thing, that that wave of force that hits him all at once that he's shocked by? That's the prayer of the saints. That thing that pins him to the ground that he can't even fight back against before we get to him. And then the next thing he knows, he's mixing it up with the sword, with the word of God and the shield of faith. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Paul is picturing the church, which is a barely infant thing at the time of Paul. Only a few thousand people around the world, but Paul already knows this is a moving wall of soldiers armored with God's armor like a wall of fire pushing through hell and knocking over the gates of hell everywhere it goes. And Paul already knows that, and that's what we're a part of. It saturates us. Speaking of that sword of the Spirit, can we trust in it? Can we defer to it? Students, this is part of what I wanted you to see as well is that God's Word is not some ancient, moldy old text that has no application to us today. I want you to look at a couple of themes that we didn't have time to unpack, that we could have spent all that time and many, many more hours unpacking. But you ask yourself, does God's Word actually speak to my life? Does it actually speak to my world? Does it actually impact the things around me? Or again, is it some 2,000-year-old book um, that my parents have on the wall to chase away evil spirits? Well, let's look. 
Are divisions an issue in our culture? Are divisions an issue in our families, in our lives, especially ethnic ones? Anyone ever run into any issues of ethnic divisions anytime recently? Heard anything about that? 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit showed the Apostle Paul that Jesus Christ himself blows away all of those walls. Any wall that can divide us, he can unite us, and he does. Is there anything that divides you from another person? Heck, everything may divide you from that other person, but if you both know Jesus Christ, then you are united in the only way that truly matters forever. And by the way, nothing else is going to cure it. If you're counting on governments or human agencies to solve this problem, they aren't going to. Read the news, watch the news. They're, they're, it's not getting any better. They're pitching everything they've got at it and it's not working. But Jesus, Jesus brings us together. How about your role in life? You experience life as an outcast, someone, someone who never seems to fit in. You're not sure what your role is. Someone who has millions of friends or someone who seems to have none. Dozens of talents or absolutely no idea what I'm supposed to do. All the privileges or none of them. Cool thing. In this letter, this is one short letter out of 66 writings that you have in your Bible. If you, all we had was the book of Ephesians, the letter to Ephesus, and we nailed it, we actually got it down pat, we'd be nailing life. We would have it mastered. It is the master's degree in life right here in a very, just six short chapters. You have a role in the most powerful organization that has ever existed on earth, and apparently an irreplaceable one. God has you gifted in special ways to impact his kingdom through his church. This applies to all believers. This is the idea. There's no one, check, there is no one without a powerful and valuable identity in the kingdom of God. No one. How about these? Are these things that impact our lives? Honesty and trustworthiness? The speech and language, what we say and what we don't say, what we should have, what kind of language we should be using or not, anger and self-control, kindness and relationships, theft and work, sex and love, joking and even secret shames. Are these things that impact our lives or, or, or have anything to do with us day to day? Every day, don't they? God's Word speaks directly to every one of them just in Ephesians. Marriage, family, parenting, children, the relationships involved here. Can God's word be a guide for us? Can it give us the direction we need in order to walk a meaningful walk? I submit it can, and it's our only hope for it. That God's word can saturate us through Christ, through the power of his spirit, and this is the life we were intended to lead, and every other life is a pathetic counterfeit. It is an empty way of life handed down to us by others. It's all the distractions that the world shows, throws at us. This man who's sitting watching over the Apostle Paul, was he a combat veteran, a praetorian, uh, maybe elite? They spent time talking, knowing how did this soldier, you can imagine Paul saying, what was it about this soldier that made him still be standing when all the other soldiers, when so many more were laying dead around them? Why does Rome still stand when other cultures are falling before it left and right? And he sees it, it's because they put on the whole armor. Not bits and pieces. They don't just, it's not just a little bit here and there. It is the whole thing. Their lives are dedicated to it. Every piece, identifying them with their armies, connecting them to it, and practicing, mastering it. Being a soldier his whole life kept him alive. He was prepared, he was equipped, and he was willing. And the soldier knew how to take care of business. 
And on that note, I want to wrap up with the last little thing I want to share with you, which coincidentally comes out of Luke. It's actually not a coincidence at all. That's totally dishonest. It's straight from Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 41. It's a powerful picture. You ready? I love, one of the things we talked about in the book of Luke, I love in Luke being able to ask the question, what question was asked by Luke in order to get this answer? Luke wasn't here for any of this stuff, I mean, we assume. And so I picture Luke sitting down with Mary, this old woman at this stage, this old woman named Mary of Nazareth, and he's asking her questions. I don't know what the first question was. I don't know what it was. Tell me the story, Mary. Maybe it was that simple. Or when did you know who Jesus was? And Mary goes, oh, before he was even born, I knew because there was this angel who visited. In fact, it was before that. My, my family came to me and said that their son was going to be the prophet to proclaim the coming Messiah. And next thing I know, the angel's coming to me and going, and you're the one who's going to carry the Messiah, Mary. I knew before who he was. I knew the whole time. There were all these witnesses. There were these people. And they were even telling me scary stuff about me, but it was still the case that I knew the whole time. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Luke... My next question would be, when did he know? I mean, when Jesus was this newborn baby laying in the manger, he wasn't thinking about the Trinity. He was just a baby, right? He was either eating or squalling, pooping or sleeping. I mean, that's kind of the only options for a baby, right? That's what Jesus was doing when he was a newborn. He wasn't pondering the, 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 the aspects of theology that we've not... He was experiencing life as a human being, as a baby. He had to grow in favor with God and men. He even had to learn obedience, the book of Hebrews tells us. Like this is, he had to experience life like us. He went through the awkward stages and the challenging stages and the difficult stages. He went through all that. He experienced all that. So you've got to wonder, when did he know? Now, maybe Mary and Joseph told him the whole time, this is who you are. But even then, did he get that? I mean, was, when you're telling a six-year-old or a 12-year-old, I mean, all 12-year-old boys think they're the Messiah, right? I mean, that's not special. That's a, I have all the answers. I've got it nailed. Just do it my way and we'll all be good, right? So how do you, what do you do with that? When did Jesus know? I think maybe that's the question that got asked, that Luke asked Mary, that gets us this account. Matthew doesn't have it. Mark doesn't have it. John doesn't have it. Just, just Luke. So here's what I think, that's what I think is going on. Verse 41 of chapter 2. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three Days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. Now, of course, we as Christians go, oh, Jesus was lost in Jerusalem for three days. Got it, right? That's going to happen again, by the way. Mary's going to lose Jesus for three days in Jerusalem. It's when he's dead. That's when you're going to lose him for three days next time, right? But we're like, okay, I see what's, your I see what's happening here. This is cool. But, but so what's really going on? We don't know for sure, but here's the most likely guesses people give. So Jesus, who's, turn, who's just turned 12, is probably about the age. So modern day Jewish people have something called a bar mitzvah, which is when a boy is declared a man. You're a boy, now you're declared a man. Well, that didn't start to the medieval era, like the 1400s, but it didn't come from nothing. The Jews have always done that. We don't know exactly what it looked like 2,000 years ago. Maybe that's what happened. So Jesus, men and women, typically, apparently, traveled apart 
So the, the men traveled together, the women traveled together all during the day, and they would catch up with each other in the evening and put up their tents and that kind of stuff and then travel the next day. Well, so you can totally imagine what might have happened is that Jesus is traveling with the women as a boy on the way to Jerusalem, and they get to Jerusalem, maybe they have some kind of a ceremony, and Jesus is declared a man at some level, or maybe just at age 12, that they just got that. And so Mary's, when he's coming home, Mary's assuming he's with Joseph. Well, he doesn't find Joseph, so Mary, Joseph assumes he's with Mary. So you can totally imagine them walking all the way back. They walk a day, probably 20 miles, and they get somewhere, and they're setting up tent, and uh, every married couple knows exactly what's happening here, right? Hey, so where's Jesus? What do you mean, where's Jesus? I thought you had Jesus. You didn't have Jesus? Did we just lose the Son of God? We just, we just misplaced. God came to earth and we misplaced him. Like, we can't find him. What is the, what's the punishment for that, right? Exactly. They, they're like, what's, what did, what's happening? They're panicking about it. I do it to Ginger all the time. Every single time that we're dri- I'm driving home and I'm supposed to have one of the kids, I mean, pr- probably 100% of the time, that she calls me and she's like, hey, so you've got Michael? And I'm like, I was supposed to have Michael? Now, I have Michael. But I'm, but every, and, and she falls for it every time. She panics every single time. It's, it's, it's awesome. Being married to me is so fun. So this is a, uh, this, that's what's happening here is this type of, oh my gosh. So they go back, they walk back. I don't know if they waited until the next morning or they took off that night. And let me just take one second. He's 12, but this is 12 back then. He's essentially a man. They're not panicked like if we lost a 12-year-old. They're not panicked like they're, he's four. He's not four wandering around Jerusalem, right? I mean, this is, this is even just 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago right? When many of us were kids, I mean, I walked two miles across SFA campus as a seven-year-old after second grade every single day to my dad's office. That was normal then. That's a CPS call now, right? But that was normal. That kind of stuff happened back then. So this is a, that's, again, be okay with that a little bit, but three days? Wandering so they're going around Jerusalem looking for Jesus for three days, and he's sitting in the temple, Supposing, and we, go, we get down to verse 46, after three days they found him sitting in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, probably the question asking things a little different in rabbinical thinking is that, is that probably asking the questions means you're kind of the one in charge. And so it feels like there's a little bit of a role reversal here that Jesus and these, and these rabbis are having these conversations, and Jesus is the one maybe with some of the most insightful input. We're not surprised by that. But what are they talking about, do you think? They're sitting up there. What are they talking about? The resurrection? Maybe. I mean, he is the resurrection and the life. Are they talking about, um, are, you know, there's all, are they talking about the Sabbath? I mean, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. They're talking about creation. All things were created through him and by him. He's an interesting person as a 12-year-old to have a conversation like this. But what if what they're talking about is the Messiah? Can you imagine, even, whether Mary and Joseph have been telling Jesus he's the Messiah all along, or whether he understood what that meant or like, I don't know. Or maybe they kept it quiet, like, listen, let him be a normal kid, Right? But at some point, I'm imagining this is, I don't know this is what happened. I just like this picture. Jesus is sitting and talking to these leaders in the temple. And they're debating the Messiah. And one of them says, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And the other one goes like, no, 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 no. I know that it says he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but it also says he's going to come out of Egypt. And so we need somebody who, may, oh, maybe they're born in Bethlehem, but they've got to come out of Egypt. How is that? You can't do both, right? How would you do both? And another guy goes like, no, no. Remember, it says a shoot is going to come out of Jesse. A shoot, and shoot is the word for Nazareth. I think he's going to be from Nazareth. And you imagine Jesus going, I was born in Bethlehem, and I'm from Nazareth, and I came out of Egypt, and I'm in the tribe of Judah. Is that the moment when the Holy Spirit settled on his soul and told him, yeah, it's you? 
This is who you are. Revealed to him. I don't know. But here's what happens. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? So typical. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Here she means Joseph, doesn't she? And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He doesn't mean Joseph. In fact, I think we discussed this. If you listen to the podcast, we went into this in detail. We, we like the idea. What he actually says here is, didn't you know I need to be about my father's business? And even that's not broad enough. Didn't you know that I needed to be the stuff that's about my father? That's what I'm about. The things that are the father, that's me. That's what I'm all about. I'm all about the things of the father. Now, I think... There's a little disagreement. Paul's not as convinced as I am. But I think part of this conversation is him saying, you had to look for three days? You didn't start in the temple? You didn't start in my father's house? I mean, if I went missing, I doubt if people would just randomly start up in North Tyler and go house to house all the way down. They'd probably start here or at the counseling center or at my friend's houses. You wouldn't just randomly like, pick a place to start looking. You would look first in my home. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It took you three days to find me. Why didn't you start here in my father's house where I would be doing my father's business? I think that's at least part of it. But the biggest concern he's saying here is this is, this is all to me. This is my father's business. And it creates a wonderful question for us here at the end of this passage. You know these things that are my father's, his house, his business, all those things? That's what my life is about. Has it been strange, students, to be in somebody else's house this weekend? They have different things going on in their houses. You're like, why don't they do this? This is really bad and wrong and weird. And what, what is this? Like, being in the wrong house feels strange, doesn't it? So here's the question for us. In fact, I'm going to have you stand. I'm going to ask you the question with you standing. As we're prepared for the Spirit to guide us in this. Students, this is for you, everybody. This is for us. What about us? Are we about the Father's business? Or have we filled our life in such a way that the Father's business is this little side hustle that we have? It's this little moonlighting thing that we kind of do periodically in the evening. Sure, we show up on Sunday morning. We have this little part-time job called the Father's business. <clears throat> or does it saturate everything that we are? Is the Father's business, that's what our rabbi did, it's that what we're supposed to be doing. Are we about our Father's business? Could we be easily found walking the walk, living according to the truth of who we are, living a life worthy of the calling with which we have been called? Could we be caught that way? Could we live that out? When they see Jesus, they experience him. He goes back to Nazareth with them. And though he is the Messiah, and now they all know he knows, he still lives in submission to them. It's an amazing picture of a God who came to experience life as human. We've been singing about it all morning. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. We'll mention that again. But do you know who you are? Do you know what your father's business is? And is that how we're living our life? Is it saturated? So that's the challenge for us. As the Spirit is here. And listen, prayer is a big part of this. We talked about the prayer. And, and one of the things we're going to be doing is, is over the next few weeks, you're going to start having see people show up up here on Sunday morning to greet you, to pray with you. 
Right now, you may be thinking, I would God, I'd love to go pray up there, but it's a little awkward, it's a little weird, there's no one else up there, and Chris and Paul look busy, and I don't, I don't want to bug them, and that'll be fine. We're going to have people up here to, to receive you when you come down, and they're going to pray with you. And I hope you'll do that. I hope that'll be your passion. There are more and more opportunities all the time to pray in groups here at the church. Prayer needs to become a saturated part of who we are and the church. And, um, and of course, it's a challenge for all of us. Our natural tendency, like mine, is to, be, is to think of prayer as just prayer. Those two words should never go together, but they do in my heart sometimes, sadly. It's not just prayer, but it is the power of that. Look carefully then. In a minute, uh, you, can be, you can come up for that. If you want to come pray about anything for any reason, whatever, or where you are. If you put your faith in Christ and you need to follow him and you understand that, we would love to pray with you about that. If you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come and, and join our deeply flawed family, we would love to have you. Um, that's, that's a great part of the conversation too, whatever it is. Students who made decisions this week, it'd be great for some of you to come and let us know what those are here this morning. It'd be awesome. Um, for the rest of us, let's listen to what the Spirit says to us. The truth is, as Ephesians teaches us, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, because make, making the best use of time because the days are evil. There's going to come a day for each of us, some soon and some later, and no one knows when we're going to die. And the question will be, how have we spent this life that God has given us? Walking how? About what business and whose business? That's the challenge.